0: Today's episode of Undesigned comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all Elders past, present and emerging. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. Cheeky boy. (laughs) Hey Undesigned listeners, Costa here. Thank you so much for joining me on today's very special episode with Google about inclusive technology. But before we get into the actual conversation, I have a special guest with me. Joining me for today's intro is Draw History's founder and my dear friend and colleague, Jeff Effendi. Welcome, Jeff.
1: Hey, 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 what's going on? Hey, tell us what you're doing here and what today's episode means to you. My pleasure. Hey, Costa, I'm stoked to join you today to introduce this surprise episode. Finally, I'm in the hot seat. Like, I'm really happy to be a part of this podcast. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. (laughs) It has. Hey, well, we're bringing this conversation now with Google for a couple of reasons. The first being that it's True History's sixth birthday this week. Yay, that's so good. Amazing. Yeah. It's a milestone moment for us, right? And in the spirit of our mission, which is to design new futures for people who need tomorrow to be better than today, this topic really represents and shines a light on what that means, especially in the context of how technology can improve people's lives. Mm. Also, it's a joy just to be able to host a conversation with the Google Next Billion users team that I was a part of last year, fortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, I really believe in what they're doing, and I love that we get to share a more in-depth look into this work with our listeners.
0: Yeah, I agree, Jeff, um, and this chat with Garen really was so fun, not because of all the amazing stories he shares, but more importantly, at least for me, it was quite humbling, and to hear about the Next Billion Users initiative and to just, to just contemplate the sheer size, scale, and ambition of this mission really just made you reflect on how small we all are. Um, I guess because as a digital native myself, it can be easy to take for granted that everyday technology is not necessarily available everywhere. But in addition to that, and maybe even more profoundly, it can be even easier to forget that technology up until now has been designed with a very specific type of user in mind. But what about the swathes of people who are jumping online for the first time? Generally coming from huge countries like Indonesia, India, and Nigeria, we are now understanding that while we all share a lot in common, their digital needs are also shaped by the cultures and communities they are a part of. This topic then of inclusive technology is really a question about what it means to design technology for everyone, everywhere. And speaking to us on this very special episode is Garen Checkley. Garen is the product manager in Google's Next Billion Users Initiative, the purpose of which is to design products for people who are discovering the internet for the first time. In addition to the countries I mentioned earlier, Garen has also conducted research as part of the MBU team with Mexico, Pakistan, and the Philippines. He's really passionate about creating useful, usable, and inclusive products, and Garen brings with him a particular focus on how to ensure gender equity in online spaces and how we can increase meaningful digital literacy for those newer users that are coming online for the first time. Most recently, Garin lived in Bangalore, India, before returning to San Francisco in the US. He's got quite an amazing resume and quite a litany of stories. Jeff, what else can you tell me about Garen?
1: Yeah, well, Garin was a you know dear former colleague of, of mine, and um, whenever he speaks about something and you, you'll pick this up, he speaks with a ton of joy and passion for the things he cares about. So without any further ado, let's kick on to the episode. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Hey,
0: let's get into it. Awesome. Um, so you're calling in from San Francisco. Nice balmy evening.
2: Yeah, not so bad. Weather's good.
0: Not so bad. Great. Well, yeah, we're really grateful for you to join us on this really special edition where we're talking about inclusive technology, but through the prism of the Next Billion Users project that you're involved with. So for those unfamiliar with the phrase Next Billion Users, who are the Next
2: Billion Users? Right. So the Next Billion Users are are people that are coming online to the internet for the very first time and this is usually happening in countries like India, Indonesia, Nigeria, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Brazil, Mexico. And I think it's easy for us to forget because you know, perhaps we started using the internet 10, 15 years ago on a desktop computer, but only recently have the majority of adults on the world, you know, actually been able to access the internet for the very first time. And not only are these these users in the countries that I've listed but they're also usually coming online using smartphones as their only computing device so they're mm-hmm. mobile first or mobile only they often face different challenges where the cost of internet the connectivity of the internet can be cannot be great uh, oftentimes there's compatibility issues with their software performance issues and less likely to speak english and so the the way that they're actually interacting uh, with the content and the the uis are different and of course you know because they live they live somewhat different lives than us their use cases and their needs are sometimes quite different and i'm sure we can get into that
0: so as well my starting point with this topic is really just why do the next billion users even matter right and not not in that um that sounds very callous when i say it like that but more that you know is the adoption of technology just a sort of a gradual process like what what's what is what is to be gained or what is the purpose of looking into the future for this next billion users why do we feel the need to cater to this audience that we're not even we don't even know yet and why is that important in bringing them into the fold from now
2: right well the there's kind of two simple ways to answer why do the next billion users matter the first is that the majority of the internet not only will be, but is actually right now these users. The majority of the people that are actually using the internet are coming from countries like India, Nigeria. Yep. Uh, the, the, the second, uh, potentially even more compelling, more interesting reason here is that the internet actually hasn't been designed for them. The internet was designed for people like myself, which are relatively tech-savvy, uh, educated people that live in the Bay Area, which is where a lot of the internet has started. But that's actually not who's using the internet. And so as somebody comes online for the first time in a country like India, they deserve an internet experience yes. that's designed and made for them in the same way that somebody like you know, my sister deserves an internet experience that's made for her. And you know, there's a lot of work to be done, which is part of what what we do in the next billion users initiative at Google to actually design more appropriate more relevant more useful technology given these different contexts
0: yes you really just hit the nail on the head there in terms of what i was getting at here where i think a part that's overlooked in how we talk about the internet inclusive technology is that it hasn't been built for everyone everywhere and that seems to be a catch cry of the of the the work right like building technology for everyone everywhere what does that mean from Google's perspective?
2: Right. Yeah, no. I, I, exactly. You're hitting the nail on the head, and this is actually not just about the next billion users. This is so much of the kind of reckoning and self-identity um, thinking that the technology industry is going through right now, which is not only what do we make, but who makes it, why are they making it, who are they making it for, and when it comes to when it comes to the next billion users, the way in which we make technology for them is not just by imagining what their lives are like sitting upon our stereotypes, it's actually by spending a lot of time in these contexts. And the way that I like to think about it is not only designing for them, but designing with them. So actually spending time in their communities, getting to know them over a period of time, speaking to them about issues that are not just usability or interface issues, but more cultural issues. Also ask, what are your hopes and aspirations for this new smartphone that you've just bought and this process of spending time with these users and designing with them and getting iterative feedback along the way and really putting them at the center of our development process is is one of the ways that we think that we can end up making technology that's not only more appropriate but really helps them achieve what goals and aspirations they have for getting online in the first place
0: Mm. And what are some of those goals and aspirations you've learned about so far in the work that you guys have done to this point?
2: Right. So as I was mentioning, you know, I don't. I, I think we can speak a lot about how the next billion users are quite different mm. from us. Yeah. You know, they're less likely to speak English, which is what we're speaking in now. They're less likely to use desktop computers, which is what we're using to record this podcast. Um, they're more likely to be lower income, more likely to live in less urban areas we're both speaking from a city right now and so given these different contexts there's different you know, th- there's a lot of similarities despite these differences at the end of the day one of the things that i've learned you know throughout our research is you know everyone wants to spend time with their family and talk to their family regardless of whether they live together or live in different countries or on the other side of the same country they want to I think one common thing that we ignore is that everyone just wants to relax sometimes, you know, veg out on the couch and watch a silly cat video <laughs> um guilty the you, you know and and then there are quite there are some differences in the context where some folks have not been able to spend as much time in formal education, and so they're looking for. They're looking for more education resources online, or they're looking to the phone for the opportunity to get better work, you know, or to make their, their to make the small business that they run earn more efficiently. These are the types of things that we actually focus on in the next billion users initiative uh, within Google because we think that they're disproportionately important for this user group. Because as more and more people come online, the internet population does. Is more and more representative of all of humanity with these different types of right with these different types of use cases. So that's interesting. Just to circle back a bit for the sake of clarity
0: here, because we talked about who the next billion users are. Are all of those next billion users new internet users?
2: So newer internet users are are uh, is is a segment of user that's coming online for the very first time. And so when we when we talk about next billion users, there's this subset of them that are brand new to the internet and that are just getting a smartphone for the very first time and trying to make sense of all of this. And just like the first time that you drove a car is very different than the way that you drive a car right now, the experience of using a smartphone is super different when you're only a week or a month in. So I actually can... Let me tell you a story Please. about one of these about one of these newer internet users and this was uh, on this research project where we actually uh, where we went to get a sense of what are the challenges and opportunities from better designing a smartphone and app experience for people that are just coming online for the very first time so we spent some time with an individual in a rural Nigerian town and he's a tailor actually uh, by trade and profession he had seen other people in his community with smartphones but he had never really held one himself he never owned a smartphone himself and and he was thinking about getting one because you know if everyone else has one maybe there's some value to it but wasn't really sure what it was used for how to use it and we were with him i was actually sitting next to him when he ver- when he got his very first smartphone and first of all he needed help knowing how to turn it on which is something that's second nature for us and then we we guided him to the camera because one of the things that he had seen other people do with a smartphone is take pictures. And he opened the camera app, but he wasn't sure what to do in the camera app. It took about two minutes to, to understand that that silver button in the middle of the screen was the thing that you had to touch in order to take a picture. Wow. And f- these were kind of two really intense minutes of him trying to figure out what do I actually do now that the image is moving on my phone live? How do I capture this picture? And after doing this, of course, the next question is, well, where does that picture go? Right. Right? Because it's second nature for us that there's a little icon in the corner next to that silver button where you can get back your images that you just took from the camera. But this is just, these are just, this is just like a small sliver of an example of just when you're getting onto a smartphone for the very first time, there's all these unknowns that we take for granted. How do you turn it on? How do you take a picture? How do you even see the picture that you just took that users are having to figure out themselves? Wow. That really makes you
0: reflect on how much we take for granted, how much we've already learned up until this point, like things that feel like second nature at this stage just by virtue of being digitally native or, you know, technology coming into our lives young enough for us for it to feel normal, you, you can really forget to appreciate how strange it must look to someone that just hasn't grown up with that or, or had that readily available for them.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, we, we've had 10 years of evolution, more than 10 years of evolution of the smartphone ecosystem for us to get used to this and have, and have us grow into it. You know, maybe every year we get an update to our operating system and we learn a few new things, but it's like dropping somebody who's never driven a car into a, you know, driving some kind of race car, Ferrari thing at this point where, where the, the features are so powerful and the organization is so complicated because of this accumulated, uh, you know, these accumulated features that feel second nature to us but that's really not how it is when you're coming online for the first time and then the what compounds this is you know this tailor in this rural area in Nigeria the amount of money that he had to spend on that phone was a pretty decent chunk of his monthly income of course right he's a small small microfinance business owner and it's not like pushing the wrong button the phone breaks it's not like it's, it's not as simple as just going and buying another phone hmm. you know he might not even have somebody in his family or in his community that even knows how to how to un- unbrick the phone if if, if it's broken and, you know, one of the things that we've heard over and over in these user research sessions is that when people don't know how to do something when they get stuck on the phone they take it to the local phone shop right and what what incentive does the phone shop owner have to help if it's a hard problem they'll just do a factory reset you lose all your images and your contacts and everything like this. And so not only is the experience of, of learning the phone, like you or I learning how to drive some kind of race car, but there's not even a support mechanism there a lot of the time, which is, which is a pretty interesting difference in, in, in the use of technology. And Garen, you were just
0: getting me to reflect again on the fact that cars, for example, are second nature, but we don't, I mean, you don't have to know a lot about a car in terms of how engines work in order for it to to use it comfortably, which is actually a really strange human logic gap, really, if you ask me, where it's like we're very comfortable in these huge pieces of machinery. We need to know maybe 5% of how to use it in order to use it right. safely. But our fail safe, if something was to go wrong, is to go to a mechanic or speak to someone who knows a bit more than us. So, of course, it makes total sense what you're saying in that even with a phone, we don't have to know a lot about it. But once something goes wrong, we have to know where to go or have options on where to go. And just on that sort of that ballpark, what are some of the common challenges that users encounter as part of this Next Billion Users initiative specifically? Um can you speak on some of the challenges on on rolling out such an ambitious initiative like this?
2: Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of challenges that we would uh, the, that we've come to expect like, you know, the compatibility of the of a low-end device being able to run modern performative apps. There's connectivity challenges of of people not being online or the the data is quite expensive, mm. and these are quite common challenges. I think one of the more interesting challenges from the design point of view as well is that is this fear actually low confidence that people have when interacting with their phones. And so to, to extend the car analogy, you know, what if you were scared to use the car and to drive around? You know that's not very, that's not good for the community. Uh, for the for the user themselves, because they don't they, they don't use the car, uh, it's not good for the community in which the in which the car is you know uh, is is a contributor, and I think that there's yeah I, yeah I think I think we kind of underrate for these newer users that are co- that are coming online just how overwhelming the smartphone experience can be, and. We've published uh, something called the Digital T- Confidence Toolkit, which is a kind of design, design resource and guidelines to help product designers and product managers think through ways to help users with lower confidence levels. Mm. And we've also published another research insights document called The Pivotal Role of Informal Teachers, because as I said, it's not just the individual that's learning it it's there's the teachers that are helping them with the with the ecosystem and sometimes this goes well and sometimes it doesn't go well so i actually want to tell a story about this of another user yes uh, where in in south of india in the state of tamil nadu we met a user that had that really nicely illustrated both the advantages and the pitfalls of relationships between newer internet users and their informal teachers so there was a woman who was a housewife who we were with her when she got her very first smartphone, and she was super excited about all the things that she could do on her phone. You know, as a housewife, she spent a lot of time at home, so she was bored, uh, and she also wanted to travel a little bit more. And so she thought she thought she could call a a, a cab to come and pick her up. You know, using using a kind of what is an, a, an Uber equivalent in India, and it was actually her son that she was depending on to teach her how to use most of the smartphone. Mm. Now on the plus side, he taught her how to watch videos, uh, how to watch live, you know, live cricket matches because she actually was a cricket fan. But on the minus side, he uh, on the minus side he actually first of all was almost never home because he was out studying and hanging out with friends all the time. So she actually just didn't have the opportunity to learn. And when she when when he was teaching her, he was. Uh, he was a bit short tempered in the sense of <laughs> you know how maybe when you and your sibling are helping each other out or if you if you help your parents out learning how to do something you know there's there's some tension in the family and this is a every family has this dynamic this is not unique to new internet users
0: absolutely
2: but but when when this when this housewife was depending on her son to learn you know she had this really funny quote she's like you know, I'll learn how to shop on this shop online shopping website if I practice it five times. Huh. And then her, and her son said, I'll only teach you four times <laughs> because I don't want to spend all this time. Like you you know, you're too scared. You don't know what to tap around. And so she ended up being stuck in this, in this phase where she had learned some things, but really the phone was quite a scary place for her to explore. And she had all these aspirations, you know, like to to shop online to 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 call a cab but she didn't really know how to go about doing this because she was kind of too scared to explore she needed help but she didn't have anybody she didn't have any informal teachers around her to help her out
0: i'm laughing because it reminds me so much of my relationship with my mom um and getting her onto technology as well like you know my mom is a septagenarian greek woman um and we have a good relationship. I'm the baby, but I I teach her a lot about using her iPad or actually me and my siblings divide that labor pretty evenly. Um, but I probably see her the most. So that comes to, that falls on my shoulders a bit. And I know I resonate really highly with that sort of her saying to me, I'll get it once you show me five times and me being like, I'm going to show you four times because this takes forever. Yeah, I can understand that. Any any tips for people like me teaching their parents how to come online or how to just to understand Patience. it, I guess... Patience, yeah, because you forget. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, 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 you're exactly right. You kind of forget the perspective of the other yeah. individual. You think this is so easy, I do this five, you know, I, I add a contact to my phone five times a day or even, mm. whatever, so why do you need this help? Why is it so troubling? And if you actually look at the steps required to add a contact, this is a really- yeah. Pretty complicated, like unusually complicated process. Uh, So, I mean, but but at the same time, I I think that it's not only for the teachers that are out there uh, to to improve. There's actually there's really neat things that as technology makers we can do. So, um, so I'll I'll share a I'll share a story of how we've taken this insight of newer internet users needing teachers and how we've translated this back actually into our products. Okay, great. We. And, and, and we have a, we have a um, so on the Android Go operating system, which is a entry-level phone uh, operating system, we have an app called Google Go, which is the search app on that operating system. And there's this really cool feature within the search app where there's many educational videos teaching you how to utilize the features, like voice search, or incognito mode. And these are kind of educational videos that appear along the top of the app. And so what that means is that if you constantly go to your son, for instance, in your mother's case, or this housewife in South India's case, you know, maybe some of the time you actually don't need to go to your son because there's actually tutorial content built into the product ex- itself. You know, and and I, I think that this is a... You know, these educational videos are they're not only neat because the because of the design pattern here, but what they reveal is actually almost this implicit bias in how we design technology, which is that we design technology, you know, specifically our apps, with the assumption that people will have the confidence to move around and discover. Mm. what the value is. That they'll feel confident going under this tab or opening up this menu or clicking to this screen or you know going behind this tooltip and really figuring out what it is. And a lot of this actually comes back to a bias in how we assume that users learn technology. Mm. And there's some very nice academic literature on this around how, how users actually learn technology. And there's this kind of spectrum of people who are more exploratory and they tinker around versus people who require more procedural learning which is like handheld hand holding instruction manuals and i'm sure you have a friend who reads the instruction manuals, you know, or you have <laughs> yeah. a parent that does and 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 you know maybe for you that seems super weird but this is actually just a different learning style mm. and the reason why it comes back to who builds technology is the folks that have historically created Technology, you know, in in the tech industry, built been building apps and operating systems. They themselves are, you know, they love technology. They love exploring it. Their their learning style is exploratory in nature. But there is this assumption that the rest of the world. The rest of the, you know, billions of internet users also have that same level of exploratory learning style. And that's simply not true. Right. This is especially true with newer internet users who are just coming online for the first time. It's it's daunting, it's overwhelming, and they require a bit more hand-holding to feel comfortable. And you know, it's it's quite interesting how it does trace back to the people that are actually making it, the assumptions that they make. And, you know. And this this comes back to the Next Billion Users project of, you know, this is why we have to spend the time with these users to get a sense of how are we doing this, you know, like what are the assumptions that may not be right about how we've been making technology and how do we build more appropriate and relevant, useful apps for the people that are just coming online? Yeah, sure.
0: It's amazing how much of the research and just some of your observations come back to social and emotional aspects of using technology rather than just purely technical in that you know digital confidence to me signals an emotional need maybe based on social expectations or pressures and you're right in that when you're not confident with a piece of technology you're probably less likely to explore it for the sake of exploring it you just want it to yeah. work and you don't want to do anything to deviate you don't you're you're maybe maybe this is an assumption, but my feeling is that you're not deviating in order so you limit your ability to break something. You know, so when you're using something new, you just want to do what it tells you to do in order for it not to break. Like that's your, that's my, I think that would be my sort of starting point. Is that, are you saying that you're seeing that reflected in some of the new user behavior regarding new technology? It's just like.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, people people are not super, they're not tinkering around they're not trying to push it to its limits they're actually barely utilizing it at all and you know one solution that i mentioned is these learning videos to help supplement the you know the son of that housewife that was that wouldn't teach her the fifth time hmm. uh you know or or you know that wasn't around to help teach there's these learning videos where we can you know or, or these types of projects where we can help users better learn but i think just as exciting is how do we make the products even easier and more relevant mm. for these users, so that the cost of exploring and the cost of using is even less. And I'll and I'll give a uh, you know I'll give a specific example here, and that's that a lot of the people that are coming online, a lot of new internet users, are coming from backgrounds where they've not spent time in formal education, so they've actually got lower you know. Uh, they've got lower literacy levels and you know reading and writing and spelling can be quite challenging and on top of that you know typing in some of the languages for instance typing in hindi is 3 times slower than typing in english simply because of the script layout right, right? so imagine you've got a user who's coming online who only really speaks hindi with a relatively you know modest or low education level, and they're really struggling to even type out a search query into YouTube. Mm. And we've been doing a ton of work to try to understand, you know how do we solve for this type of problem. And a huge opportunity here is voice, okay? And we actually we you know, I mentioned some of the other tools that we've put on our website earlier. we we actually just a couple of weeks ago launched, the voice playbook, we call it, which is a set of insights and, and design guidance around how people, technology can designers, can really design their apps to integrate with voice to make it really intuitive and, and natural for the next billion users to use it. And so what this means is you know, a user that wouldn't really know how to type in romantic songs in Hindi into their keyboard, they can actually just say romantic songs right. directly into their YouTube app and uh, you know, and 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 get videos, uh, get get vi- you know videos to listen to romantic songs in Hindi, for instance.
0: Even just uh, like because I think I read something as I was reading, just in anticipation of our chat, and I think it was more than a million new internet users come online every day that wouldn't be able to do so without voice. Right. So that's one of those things that again you take for granted because. You know, we're so used to, I mean, again, when I first started using technology, the voice capability part was literally just recording, you know, more than anything else, not to actually tell something or give instructions or um, let alone search for anything. So again, that's just a really interesting example that seems so simple and so straightforward, but obviously there's a lot of technology underneath that.
2: Right. I mean and and I think it's a, a phenomenal example because Costa, I imagine you also use voice sometimes. You must speak to the assistant or Siri, right? Uh you know, maybe you know what? I every actually, so often.
0: I, maybe every so often, usually to tell it ask me to tell me a joke more than anything <laughs> more than anything else.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us, you know, every so often we use, you know, set a timer, uh, you know, like wake me up tomorrow, set an alarm yeah. for this, or you know, what's the time or you know, uh, you're cooking something and your hands are full, and so there's like two really interesting points here. The first is that for us, voice is kind of super convenient, mm. but for these newer internet users, that really because of their literacy or you know lower lower education levels, voice is super crucial for being able to interact with the internet with agency. Yes, right. And and I use the word agency here because you can always open up your phone and just scroll down whatever the internet gives you. But if you want to ask for something in return, you need a way to input that yes. ask. And so the voice technology is crucial for new internet users because it allows them to ask for the thing that they actually want rather than just being served whatever the recommendation is. And so for, for, for you and I setting a timer in the kitchen when we're cooking something, it's convenient. For a new internet user, it's crucial. Hmm. And it's, it's, you know, to tie it back to this, you know, we've been talking about this metaphor of a car, you know, like learning how to drive a car, being able to get around having the independence that a car can give you. It's almost like voices, like the automatic shifter in the car compared to a a stick. And, you know, a lot of folks don't like, if you think about it, an automatic, um, this is how less savvy I am. I don't even know what the formal name is for an automatic transmission. I think, right? <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah, like an automatic versus stick. I don't even know how to drive a stick. And there is probably, you know, millions or billions of people that don't know how to drive sticks. And so the freedom and independence that a car can give you is, you know, made possible by the fact that there's an you can drive an automatic. And just just like that, for newer internet users, voice provides this level of you know agency uh, agency that's there. You know, the, the, one of the other really interesting tidbits in the voice playbook that we released is that not everything about voice is hunky dory. Actually, yeah, sure. And you know, you, you mentioned the you mentioned the um, cultural, the kind of cultural context of these users. And I remember a user that I met that was searching for gulab Jaman, which is a popular. Oh yeah,
0: I know gulab jamun very well.
2: <laughs> great, great. Yeah, just don't eat, just we shouldn't eat, be we shouldn't be eating too much of it because it's no, very
0: sugary. It's very but, sugary.
2: But for, the, for any listeners that are not familiar, gulab jamun is a dessert. And so there was a user um, that we were spending time with that was using her voice to search for gulab jamun recipes on YouTube. And she was speaking in a dialect of Hindi that actually YouTube didn't understand. And what she thought was she did it wrong, right? And this is a pretty normal response if you're new to the technology, you know, my search query was wrong. I did it wrong. I don't speak Hindi correctly, which is why the phone can't understand me, which is of course, as technology designers, we know this is not at all the way that we would want to think about this. We would just think that the phone is listening incorrectly. Our speech recognition algorithms are are, are not great, but there's this kind of social context around, you know, like, am I, emba- am I, am I going to embarrass myself by needing to use voice in the first place because it's a signal of lower literacy? And, you know, if I if I am understood, is it, you know, if, if I do use voice, is it even understood because of my accent? And so there's a, there's a lot of these really interesting cultural nuances that come around with voice despite how actual useful it is. Yeah. I mean, for me,
0: that's a big metaphor, I think, on maybe some of the more philosophical questions I have around the Next Billion Users initiative generally. You know, regarding access and participation, and just equity generally, where you've got one hand where there's the user agency and using these and interfacing with technology, and then you've got the systems themselves which are designed to receive them in a certain way. Um, So, on that note, like for me, it kind of brings to mind like who are the people actually participating in this next billion users? Kind of um, who you know who are part of this wave of people using like coming into the next billion users are there i guess what i'm getting at here are things like gender disparity in participation and things like that are we seeing any shifts in the ability of people everywhere to participate and be part of these next billion users or are we still seeing some of the same sort of systemic kind of inequalities play out in in this next tranche of users
2: yeah absolutely i mean you know there 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 the inequalities are very much reflected in the in the digital use, just by virtue of the fact that not even everyone has access to the internet. Yeah. Right. Which is a f- like the most fundamental inequality of all. And we we've actually done a, a lot of really interesting work on this. Uh, I, I participated in a project um, around gender inequity uh, on internet usage okay. for the next billion users. And we actually launched a set of insights around this in a report called Toward Gender Equity Online. You know, listeners can find this on our website. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, but but this this set of research was really um, was really based on this f- insight that actually more men have been coming online than women, and that more of the f- people that are offline are, are are women. And then we have this question of well, okay, if the internet is male dominated, what is it like as a space? For women that are coming online, and of course, how do we design an internet that is more equitable, that encourages more women to come online? That when they do come online, encourages participation in a way where they feel like the internet is made for them, just as much as it's made for men. Hmm. And um, I'm happy to dive into a couple of the insights and, and and stories here if it's useful. Please, the floor is yours. Great. So, in this toward gender equity online report, we've we've put out a ton of insights around why the internet is actually gender inequitable, uh, you know, problem statements there are to solve for, and I'll just give one example here uh, that came within that, that's actually culturally uh, that's culturally grounded because we've been talking about the influence that culture has on technology use, and that is that we saw. Uh, We saw for many women an expectation that they share their devices with other family members, other people in their communities, because of cultural norms around sharing and openness. So I actually can read you a quote uh, because hearing hearing firsthand is is really nice. And this is a quote from a a young female beautician in Lahore in Pakistan from one of our research partners. and. And she, she, she told our team in the interviewing process, she said, as I work in a beauty salon, I have to submit my phone to the receptionist when I go to work. Other staff members also do this. And I found out that some of my messages were read by someone when I submitted my phone to the receptionist. I told my friend about this and she said that the receptionist did this to her too when they were not looking. And there is this power hierarchy in this instance of, you know, somebody... Putting their giving their phone to the to the receptionist at the at the um be- at the beauty salon, and then the receptionist, you know, feeling like they had the power to go through that go through this um, female's device. And we see this not only in a work context but in a home context, where when the kids come home from school, it's often the mother's phone that they're going to play the games on, and not dad's phone. Maybe he's maybe he's out working, or maybe he's doing something on his phone, and it's. It's the female's job, you know, with gender norms to do childcare, and that extends into phone sharing. It can, it can, you know, it can also manifest when it, you know, when a, a parent is looking at their kid's phone or a brother is looking at his sister's phone to say, "I just want to make sure you're not messaging anybody that, you know, you might not want to message." Wow. Uh, that, that it might not be good for our family to message in school, and so we see we see these instances of device sharing, and. And it's culturally grounded because, because the device sharing is expected as a part of openness and virtue, especially in South Asia. The team published a paper on this around how the, the there is an expectation that people share their phones right. uh, You know, in, in these key South Asian countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, India. But one fascinating insight was despite the expectation of sharing, every single person that we spoke to wanted privacy. Right. And so they found ways of trying to get around this sharing and maintain some level of privacy. And so we, so actually, we noticed this was a really big user need. And so, kind of true to what we do within the MBU group uh, at Google, is we say, okay, here's a big user need. What are the solutions that we can build and scale around the world for this? And the product that I actually am the product manager for called Files by Google. It's like a it's a file manager and cleaner. We actually have a feature within files by Google that's called Safe Folder. And what Safe Folder allows you to do is take a picture or a document, you know, maybe a picture of a health record or a screenshot of a chat with your classmate or something like that. Or, you know, a document that you got sent from, from some official source. And you can move it into a safe folder that's protected by a pin. And that pin can be different from your device lock pin. Right. So your kids might know the pin to open up your phone, but you don't have to share the pin to open up your safe folder where you can keep your medical information. Right. And that's a way that we're still trying to enable these users to maintain their privacy on their devices, uh, but still fulfill the cultural norms mm. that they want to fulfill in many cases, Of device sharing because this is a cultural virtue. Yeah, Uh, and and you know, and uh, you know, we've been able to you know bring bring go from this insight to this safe folder feature, which is now used by millions of users around the world. Mm. That's
0: a great example. And also, I was just reflecting on how delicate the balance between sort of empowering people genuinely to have agency to decide for themselves, but also to do it in a context that is still. Respective of cultural norms, because you know we've seen many instances in just so many different areas of global development of like quote unquote sort of Western paternalist attitudes towards bringing in new technology or new uh, a new anything really as a way to sort right. of say no this is the best way to do something. So this is, I guess, where the research that you you all do in the team is really important because you do that with the end user. It's more about, because sharing is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just when it's become, Absolutely it becomes not. expected of you, um, where you don't have a Absolutely. choice.
2: Exactly. I mean, I, and I, I don't want to give the impression that no one wants to share their phones. Oh, People might want to let no, their no, kids no. play a phone on, the, on, on the, you know, might want to allow their kids to play a game on their phone or allow their brother to help fix their settings or something like that. And so sharing it can actually be great. It's not a negative.
0: Yeah, um, of course.
2: You know, in a sense, that's a way that it's it's one of the things that can bring families together is fixing all the things that. that are screwed up yeah. so that, are, that are screwed up in your phone. But I, I do think that this idea of, you know, what are our assumptions about phone use and culture is really called into question once you spend time with users and you get these insights like this. And it's not just at the beginning of the product idea, you know, we don't just go back and say, Hey, people, uh, you know, people want to maintain privacy while sharing their devices. Let's go build this feature. We're actually Continuously going back and doing iterative testing and research, right. and you know, we, we do these things called diary studies, okay. where we where we give. This is a rel- relatively common technique, I think, in the in the in the industry, where you give a user a feature and you see how it works, how it fits into their life over a period of time. It might be a week, a month, two months, and so we give somebody this safe folder feature and say, okay, how is it useful over a few months? And check in with them every few days or every week. And really designing the feature with the user population, uh, rather than rather than just doing it for the population, which I think is you know super important given how different some of these c- cultural contexts can be from from the ones that w- where we actually you know where we live. You know the 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 contexts in which we live, of course, are quite different than the ones from all, where our, all of our users across the world are living.
0: Mm. I mean, and this is what I've loved about this conversation so far in that it's really emphasized, despite the difference in circumstances, which characterizes being human in in the world right now, and there's a real sameness in some of the just the basic human needs that we are fulfilling when we access technology for the first time in that like everything you've told me about seems kind of personal, social, first then followed by the more like, oh, and I can also do this to make life easier or better. But, you know, primarily people seem to be motivated by connecting with others or entertaining themselves. And that's something we should all enjoy. And I, I love that sameness that is coming through because, you know, it, it's something we can take for granted in a very productivity focused sort of global paradigm of working right. and living. Um The potential for this to just fulfil some of the more basic human needs that we all have, I think, is a really beautiful thing.
2: Right. Yeah, I think for me, this is one of well, this has been one of the biggest personal learnings. Mm. You know, as somebody who's been working on the Next Billion Users initiative uh, for over seven years. You know, since I first got to first got to start interacting with users in Ghana and West Africa. Yep. uh, To you know, I and to to actually living in India as well. There is this tendency as we come back and talk about these users to, to focus on the differences. Yeah. And one of the personal learnings throughout this entire process for me is actually we're all not that different. Yes. You know, we all want to spend time with our family. We all want to have a roofer over our head and not worry about, you know, where we're going to buy our food and, you know, relax after a hard day of work. We want to take a bit of a vacation regardless of where it is. And, the, the differences mainly come from the context, right? Somebody has less money, has less network connectivity, has a phone, has not you know, has been in a context where there's not great access to education, or they, you know they were born in a, in a rural place versus an urban place. and mm. there's a ton of contextual differences, but people are pretty similar. Yeah, across the world, um, you know, uh, w- when you look beyond these contextual, when you look beyond these contextual differences, and I think it's super important to pull apart the individual, you know, the human needs which are quite university universal, and the contextual needs which are often quite specific, you know, and need solving for, be it education or literacy or connectivity.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Just as we sort of. Uh, approaching the sort of the tail end of the conversation, Garen, like, you know, there's so much probably left to explore, but I just want to think about the future as well and what that looks like and what it could look like and just what the, what the North Star is, so to speak. You know, how does building for the next million users fit into Google's overall mission? Like, what where do, where's the direction this wants to go and why, I guess, from Google's perspective?
2: Well, <laughs> so for, for, from Google's perspective, um, if Google wants to be relevant on the internet, then this is not only the future of the internet. This is the now. Right. This is the majority of internet users right now, and I think that's actually why it matters to all of us too. Yes. Right. When you look around the world, and even when you look at look around the technology, the digital world that we inhabit, the majority of the people online, and definitely the majority of new people coming online are these next billion users mm. and so in order to you know for, from Google from a company perspective you know if we want to keep doing the work that we do of making the world's information universally accessible and useful mm. you have to do it for everyone uh, and the needs of people will the needs of people will change and you know j- just you know to, to give an example of you know Google's mission, Focusing on making the world's information universally accessible and useful. Accessible, you know, if you can't, if you struggle to type because, you know, you didn't spend time in formal education, so you're lower literacy, uh, if you're a lower literacy user, information isn't accessible if you have to type because that's a barrier you cannot overcome. Mm. So the voice input becomes super useful there. Information is not useful if you struggle to read, but we only give you, you know, we only give you search results or web pages that are designed to be read. So actually, I mentioned this Google Go app, which is a search, a version of Google search designed for new internet users. Not only does it have voice input, but it also has voice output where it can read aloud a web page back to a user right. for a user that struggles to read. And you know, there's also translation functions built in if there's if the web page is in a different language. And these are the types of innovations that are necessary if you want to make the world's information universally accessible and useful if you know there's it should be just as accessible and useful for folks that struggle to type struggle to read don't have great connectivity so they need to download their the web pages or the videos and whatnot mm. i mean and and then that takes me to this
0: next point as well regarding just how building more inclusive technology benefits the rest of the world right so is it fair to say that Building for the next billion users is not actually just about the next billion users. It's also for the current billions of users too. Spot on.
2: I think that when you have the majority of technology users, there's bound to be a ton of innovation there. And this is exactly what we see. Right. The innovation and in voice is very much being driven by the needs of these users. The opportunities to innovate for these users is so vast. You know, what, what does it mean to use an operating system when you struggle to read and write that forces you to reinvent how computing should work. And those are the types of innovations that are going to come back and hit the rest of the world. And it's starting with these next billion users. Mm, Man, that's awesome. I guess just to
0: sort of round out now, I want to sort of bring the conversation back to the everyday user who's already on the internet, right? Do you have any ideas, advice, thoughts on what everyday users who aren't building technology, what can we do to advocate or make the online world more equitable? Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Right. So let me divide the answer to this question into two parts, because I think that the answer is different for technology creators, who I suspect some of your listeners are. Yeah. And it's different for, you know, the average non-technology creator, internet citizen. Yes. So for technology creators, actually, um, I, the, the, there's kind of two broad pieces of advice that I would give If you're out there creating technology that you would like to be accessible and relevant for the next billion users, and the first is research. This is you know, we we start by listening to who your users are, who who you want your users to be, understand their cultural context if you can spend time with them. Nothing replaces listening to users and designing with them. We actually have a ton of tools available on the Google website. It's called nextbillionusers.google. We have a variety of tools that are out there. We've I've mentioned the voice playbook, the digital confidence toolkit. We've got insights like the report toward gender equity online, a ton of content around new internet users. There's a there's a really cool report called The Pivotal Role of Informal Teachers that talks about the relationships that these newer internet users Users have with the informal teachers like that housewife's son that I was mentioning earlier, and so there's all these design and uh, design resources and research insights that are actually available because what Google wants to do is see a thriving internet ecosystem made by the entire internet, you know, by everyone in the tech industry for these users. It's not you know, we're, we're trying to give away uh, a lot of the a lot of what we've learned throughout this journey. Um, and actually, more recently, we've published some information around the impact of COVID-19 on these newer internet users, mm. uh, which is which is pretty interesting as well uh, to, to, to see how the COVID crisis has been hitting people who are just now coming online for the first time, and mm. how does that change their technology usage? Um, the, the, the type of advice that I would give for non-technology creators is much more general. Remember that people are coming online from all around the world. So you might be under a YouTube video and you never know where the commenter is from, what language they speak, what their educational background is. You, The, the commenter might even, this might be the first week of them ever having access to the internet. Mm. And so I think just practicing empathy and yeah. a kind of an appreciation of different life experiences as we're interacting with other people's content online goes a, goes a long way to, you know, both, you know, we can both be in awe of the diversity of the internet and be a lot, be quite kind to everyone else given their life experiences. Mm. So empathy, I
0: guess, cuts across both of those groups, but you know, for the tech makers, you've got, you're saying there, there actually are a suite of resources on how to yeah. support. Yeah. Next billion who want users. To Google.
2: Great. Yeah. Nextbillionusers.google really has, has a ton of research insights, uh, from all, all, almost every single one of the things that I've mentioned is is listed, great. projects is listed uh, on Next Billion Users at Google. Is the insights, and we've got a ton of of tools for product designers, product managers that are out yep. there as well. That's great.
0: Uh, but at, I guess the the common thread between both segments of uh, digital users or creators is a starting point of genuine empathy.
2: Yeah. I would say that's also a good practice for all humans. For all humans. That's so, great. So you don't you don't have to be a digital user. Uh, you can practice empathy when you see your neighbor outside too. Not all yeah, of course. The area, of course. <laughs> that's a good point.
0: <laughs> Garen, this has been such a pleasure. And again, I mean, uh, it, you know, building for the next billion users, I guess, is an incredibly challenging piece of work considering just how much I'm sure there are uncharted waters here. Um but, you know, it, it's it's one of those topics, again, that brings some sense of wonder back to the internet and to technology. Not to gloss over some of the darker parts of online life, but um, I've really appreciated just the, the sense of wonder it's brought back to my own engagement with, right. with
2: technologies. I think that, you know, those of us that work in the technology industry, there's so many ups and downs and so many issues with technology that rightly are absolutely issues that need to be dealt with. Um, many of them have been covered in previous episodes of this podcast. In fact, uh, you know of the challenges of the internet, but I think that we forget the kind of hope and awe that getting online can bring to somebody. And I remember meeting a meeting a meeting a user in um, in another area of rural Nigeria, you know, middle aged woman who uh, was a you know single mother, and she she had a small provisions store where she sold oil and noodles in this village and she didn't she didn't really have that much to, chance to travel around Nigeria she didn't have the finances to travel internationally and she really wanted to get online as a in in part to kind of experience what the rest of the world had to offer um and i think that we we kind of have taken this we've taken this for granted and the ubiquity of the internet in our lives is just how incredible it is to have access to billions yeah. of YouTube videos you know hundreds of billions of web pages be able to chat with family members across the world you, th- this is something that we take for granted but then but there's so much so much excitement and hope when somebody gets their phone for the very first time that's that for me I've been so lucky to spend time with people that have that level of energy, that that's, that's always what I think of whenever it's challenging at work for me or whenever we need inspiration to do projects. It's really coming back to those stories um around, Like, of course, it makes sense for somebody who rarely ever leaves her village in a rural area of Nigeria um, because she's got this small business to attend to. And yeah, the internet is a great quality of life improvement for her, despite all of its ups and downs. Uh, yeah. It's it's, it's got a lot to offer that a lot of people have hoped for, which is of very, which, which is pretty cool uh, to have that perspective as well.
0: It's power to be harnessed, you know, uh, and intent really forms the harness, like how that is harnessed, I guess. So that's really awesome. Garen, just um, before we officially wrap up, um, what's the best way for people to stay across what you're doing? Is it through the next billion users? Sites, so just feel free to give a plug to the best way for people to stay up to date with what you're working on.
2: Yeah, the to be honest, the, we've got a website that's pretty actively maintained. Nextbillionusers.google. Great. Not only, you know, it's got a bit, a bit about the products that we work on, if, if folks are interested in the actual technology itself, there's research insights, tools for designers, product managers. So I would say that's the that's the right starting point.
0: Great. Awesome. Garen, thank you so much for your time this morning and or your afternoon. It's been a real pleasure. And hopefully we'll, we'll have to pick up with a part two somewhere down the line.
2: Great. Thanks very
0: much. Great. Thank you. you have been listening to undesign a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at draw history and if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our undesign page at www.drawhistory.com thank you to the talented jimmy Lindbull for editing and mixing our audio Special thank you to our guests for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available.